This week, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison made his first overseas visit since the outbreak of COVID-19, meeting Japanese Prime Minister Suga to discuss the bilateral defence relationship. A key outcome of the meeting was that Australia and Japan agreed in principle to a reciprocal access agreement. This is only the second such agreement that Japan has signed since the Status Forces Agreement with the United States 60 years ago. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPI podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. To begin this episode, Brendan Nicholson and Peter Jennings discuss the reciprocal access agreement between Japan and Australia and what it signals about future engagement from both countries in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Peter, how significant is this new defence agreement with Japan and what's driving it? Brendan, I think it is significant. Uh, for a number of reasons. First, it's the only mutual access agreement that Japan has signed other than one they signed 60 years ago with the United States. So that tells you that this is a big deal in Tokyo's mind. Yes, it is basically a status of forces agreement. So I think what's more important than mechanisms that are around that is the intent that both countries have to use it as a platform to do more in the Pacific and more in Southeast Asia. And I think what what is really the guts of the announcement overnight is that we're going to see Australia and Japan more, more tightly aligned in promoting the interests of democracies, countries with shared values, countries that support the international rule of law throughout the Indo-Pacific region. Over the last few years, we've seen a, a very significant departure on the part of the Japanese particularly under Prime Minister Abe, from its rather pacifist approach that was a reaction, I think, to the, um, the, the fierce militaristic nationalism of the 1930s uh, that led Japan into a very costly war. In recent years, it's been hard, though, still to get the Japanese to talk about anything more than peacekeeping. They now appear to be coming more more willing to be involved in international, global issues, security issues. Do you think that'll continue under the new Prime Minister? Yes, I think it'll continue to be a slow process, Brendan. I I, I don't think anyone's imagining that Japan is going to alter the so-called peace constitution quickly. But, uh, you know, in in addition to the factors that that you've mentioned, I I think a really interesting development that's almost gone under the radar over the last decade has been the equipping of the Japanese self-defence force to make it progressively more and more capable organisation to the point now that they are looking at being able to operate joint strike fighters off flat tops, which previously were helicopter carriers. And, you know, a whole range of other developments besides, which has gone on under the context of the peace constitution. So, you know, a significant increase in the capacity of the self-defence force. And at the end of the day, you know, let's be honest about this. This is not happening because of concerns that Japan has about the Philippines or Thailand. It's, It's happening because of the increasingly assertive and aggressive approach that's been taken by China under Xi Jinping. So... If China doesn't welcome these developments, and I'm, I'm sure we'll hear at great length from them as to why they don't welcome them, really Beijing has no one but itself to blame because it, its behaviour in the region, militarisation of the South China Sea, the constant testing of Japan's sovereignty around the, the Senkaku Islands, 
it's these things which are now pushing the democracies to feel like they have to work more closely together in order to resist this assertive Chinese posture. Now, Japan has been subjected, as you just mentioned, to uh, constant intrusions in its airspace by both Chinese and, and Russian aircraft, by warships coming very close. Is this a, a situation that could be quite dangerous? Are we wise to get involved in it? Well, those sorts of incidents that you describe are definitely dangerous. There's no question about it. We, we had this year effectively the ramming of a Japanese military vessel by a so-called Chinese fishing vessel. And, and, and it's also the Chinese fishing fleet and, and their uh, Coast Guard which have been involved in these infringements as well. And when this is happening and when aircraft are buzzing each other and sort of testing if they can operate in areas of airspace that are denied to them, you do run the risk of an incident going too far, an aircraft being shot down, a missile being fired. I think there's, it's undeniable that that's the case. And you have to think back to the 2003 effectively crash landing of an American EP-3 aircraft onto Hainan Island after it was damaged when a Chinese fighter flew too close. So yes, there are risks. Does that mean Australia should vacate the field because it's risky? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, you know, for us, we have, uh, particularly in the South China Sea, critical interest supporting our trade, really, to say that these are international waters and we are not going to be dissuaded from going there on the basis of an illegal Chinese claim to have sovereign control over that, that area. And, uh, you know, I'm afraid were we to do so, we would, in fact, be giving de facto recognition to what has been determined by the International Arbitration Tribunal to be an illegal act. So I think Australia has to, as every other country does, accept that there's risk, but still put forward our own strategic interests and back that up with a military presence. Peter, in your past life as a senior defence official, you were involved in negotiating the, um, the arrival in Australia of rotations of American Marines, which had a, a very strong practical effect. We, we have foreign military forces working with ours on our territory. What practical effect is likely to come out of this agreement with Japan? Are we likely to see joint patrols or are we likely to station platforms, ships or aircraft in Japan? I, I think it's um, highly likely that we'll see elements of the armed forces of both countries spending more time in each other's bases and training facilities. I think I'm right in saying, Brendan, that I don't think we've actually had a, a large-scale visit of the... Japanese self-defence ground forces since the Second World War, and that you know that might actually be something that that will happen reasonably soon. That would be symbolically a rather interesting development. And across the board, I think we're going to see larger, more frequent, more complex military exercising, which could well move, as you as you say, into things like joint patrolling, more intelligence sharing to support that. You know, more complex exercising around anti-submarine warfare. All of this we've been building to for you know a good 10 or 15 years, but I think now we're at a point where the habits of working with the self-defence force are such that we're very comfortable to do this. And as uh, Prime Minister Morrison said, sort of lift this to the next level now of close military interaction. You talked about the modernisation of the Japanese self-defence force. Now, Japan has not fought in a, in a war since the Second World War, 
some countries would be concerned that they might have lost expertise or more experience and have to build from the ground up on something like this. Is that something that we can help them with? Yes, I think so. Truth of the matter is, is that the self-defence forces really had one major partner for the last 60 years, and that has been the United States military. And in some ways, the self-defence force has not evolved as quickly as it should have in the way that the Australian Defence Force has to be able to do joint operations involving two or more of the three services. So they're a rather stovepiped set of organisations, ground, air, maritime. And I think working with Australia is going to push Japan to think more about how it operates as a combined force across all the services and get them more used to the idea of working with countries other than the United States. And this will give them an opportunity to work outside Japan, presumably. Yes, I think so. So, I mean, I, I would be looking for, uh, as the communique that was issued overnight suggests, humanitarian relief missions, disaster relief activities taking place in Southeast Asia. Australia and Japan actually have quite a history of working together. We provided the security support for Japanese engineers in Iraq. Uh, we've supported them on a variety of peacekeeping missions in Africa. So we're reasonably used to each other. Where this will be new, I think, is in, frankly, moving closer to our own region and probably more upscaled in terms of the size of these types of activities that, that we're contemplating. In retrospect, like you were in defence at the time, but um, that, that joint operation in El Mutana province in Iraq, how well did the two forces work together? Was there a fairly collegiate approach? Yes, it was. Um, I, I think it came as a, a something of a surprise to the, the Australian Defence Force to understand just how constrained the Japanese felt they were, for example, in being able to defend themselves if they were fired on. You know, they simply didn't want even to do that. And I think it is important to remember that we are still dealing with a force that is constrained by its peace constitution and where popular opinion in Japan is highly averse to the idea of the soft defence force taking casualties on peacekeeping operations, for example. So this is a military, as well equipped as it is, which really hasn't had any combat experience since the end of the Second World War. Not that I'd wish that on them. Really, the point here is about collectively, I, I think, adding to a sense of deterrence uh, to sort of prevent conflict breaking out. But, you know, the Soft Defence Force, I think, will continue to be constrained and continue to be very risk-averse when it comes to uh, the threat of military conflict and casualties that could come from that. Peter, thanks very much. Brendan, my pleasure. After Australia's worst bushfire season on record, the federal government launched a Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements. The report, released in October, included 80 recommendations on how Australia can improve our national natural disaster coordination arrangements. Anastasia Capetis and Robert Glasser, senior fellow and former head of the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, shared their assessment of the report and some of the key recommendations. Hi everyone, um, I'm here with Robert Glasser again and we're going to talk about the Royal Commission into Australia's Natural Disaster Arrangements um, that's just been released uh, and, uh, and Robert has written um, extensively about the issues and also consulted um, to the Commission as I understand it, Robert. Yes, that's right. A few conversations about this. Yes. Yeah. 
with Indeed. Yeah, council assisting. Yeah. <laughs> with the council assisting. First of all, we're just going to quickly talk about uh, the prospects for climate change action after the US election with Biden squeaking into the, into the White House. How do you feel that this changes the politics of climate change globally? Well, I think it's, it's important. It will accelerate climate action because of Biden will certainly rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement process, which is a good thing. And the president has a lot of authority to make changes that can accelerate the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Having said that, if you look across the US, at state level, there has been enormous progress in furthering reductions of greenhouse gases and making commitments to even deeper reductions. And linked to that, the technology of renewable energies is just becoming cheaper and cheaper, and it's already very competitive. So Biden victory certainly helps because he can accelerate that transition in the U.S., but the underlying forces are are really um, very compelling, and they're going to make that transition happen anyway. Um, and the, the last time we, we did uh, our climate and national security pod, we talked to Emma Heard from the uh, Climate Change Investor Group, and she was saying not just the smart money in Wall Street, but almost all of the money is going in that direction. Yeah, well, she's in a perfect position to assess that. I certainly see almost every week there's a new announcement uh, about a bank, NAB, just mm. a week ago, announcing moves and in, in, to focus on low carbon emissions. Yes. ANZ. ANZ Bank. Um, yes, so I think... Uh, it's a trend that is irreversible. We also have major announcements from countries, China remarkably committing to net zero emissions by 2060. Mm-hmm. Japan, which uh, just at the end of last year had said they were not going to increase their ambition in this next phase of their uh, commitments mm-hmm. to Paris. They've now come out they and said net around. zero by 2050. So South Korea as well. So exactly. huge yes. momentum building in spite of the US elections, yes. Uh, and, and the EU, of course, uh, really kind of leading the charge on implementing and integrating all of those commitments into trade agreements too. Right. And that has, I guess, ultimately has implications for Australia as well. If our trading partners mm-hmm. have committed to addressing climate change in that way and we're a major exporter of fossil fuels, it puts increasing pressure on it our It does. Markets. We don't want to be isolated in that regard if the global economy is moving in that direction. So back to the Royal Commission and back, back to your thoughts um, on what it, what it has achieved. So in your piece, you said the recommendations were very comprehensive at the tactical level. But you argue that the Commission didn't really make the strategic shift that needs to be made. Well, I guess I think it did and it didn't. I guess it was always inevitable that many of their recommendations would be focused on the important uh, operational improvements in our emergency response Mm. capacity, whether it's we need more aerial firefighting equipment or we need to improve the uh, emergency warning system so that it's standardized across Mm. all states and territories. There are a whole range of improvements Mm. that are really, they're important improvements. They'll save lives, they'll save money, but they're not a strategic transformation in light of what the commission itself describes as a really overwhelming transformation that's happening in the climate and that will impact disasters. Does the report mention the need to lower emissions as part of that broader strategy? It doesn't, uh, and that's disappointing. When they issued their preliminary observations and propositions a few i guess this was a month or two ago they i wrote a piece for the conversation in which uh was arguing how can they 
be so deeply mm -hmm. concerned about climate change and at least not note the need to reduce greenhouse gases. Just not in passing. <laughs> it's not even in, even as a chapeau, yeah. even within government, the Morrison government's policy, because the Morrison yes. government has accepted that. And given if you look at the terms of reference of the commission, they have been empowered to comment on any aspect of the any issue that relates to Australia's ability to deal with natural disasters and how they're changing. Um, so yes, disappointing. Disappointing on that front. Do you have any idea about why that happened? Well, they've, they've made some improvements. For example, instead of describing the situation as we, we have to deal with our changing climate, which is a term that actually climate deniers use. And yes. They don't want to say climate. But I know this is a yeah, small thing, know, these words. Language is important. They've now, at least in the body of the work, talk about climate change yes. and the unprecedented uh, risks it's yeah. accelerating. Yeah. So there has been some, some forward movement on that. Some forward movement. So, Robert, one of the things that your piece talked about is that um, the most probably important strategic recommendation out of the report is the creation of a national body of some kind that puts climate change front and centre and resilience front and centre nationally and coordinates all levels of government in that national effort. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you think that can work? Yeah, and actually that is one of the recommendations that I think potentially is the most transformational mm. because... Uh, what we really need to do in the future. I mean, we can respond to disasters better and better, but we'll never get ahead of that problem in yes. a warming climate unless we start thinking more long-term, start incorporating resilience in all of our investments, economic and social investments. Yeah. So this agency, I think the commission refers to it as an entity, but it's likely to be maybe a statutory authority, anyway, an agency of some sort. So this agency would be able to think deeply and actually progress work in the na building Australia's national resilience in light of the massively changing uh, climate and the hazards it's triggering. So that's really important. Mm. Can I just ask, you also mentioned, um, you know, the need for a, a lot of strategic communication around this issue. Is that something that such a statutory authority or body would do? Um, is this something that the Commonwealth government needs to do? Is this something that states need to do? And is this something that, you know, is a, it's an education effort that's multi-year? Are we talking about a very large, broad communications uh, kind of campaign that says to the Australian public, we're entering a new era? I think it's really important. It's going to happen eventually <laughs> because the disasters are coming fast and furious now. They're coming closer together. And so even this year, we've had the bushfires, we've had coronavirus, which has kind of taken people's mind off climate. Uh, but we're now entering a La Nina period. We're likely to have floods. Well, we've already had floods, yes. hailstorms, yes. and possibly more intense cyclones uh, this year. So the government won't will be will need to begin uh, changing this narrative. It would be wonderful if it got off uh, on the on the front foot instead of the back foot and began preparing Australia, the public, for the change that is now inevitable, at least for the next two mm. decades, as the Royal Commission points out in their report, because uh, the climate, we're already committed to a significant amount of warming, which will mean more floods, more drought, more bushfires, more storm surge, collapse of coral reefs, a whole variety of major impacts that yes. will have 
uh, huge uh, economic significance for Australia. Speaking of economic significance, is such a kind of a, 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 an authority or body plus a, you know a, a really broad-based communications campaign? Is this really necessary also for Australia to signal to global economic forces that they're taking this seriously? That there are mitigation plans in place. If you're looking at the global insurance industry and reinsurance industries, for example, they're sending very very strong signals uh, that their current business models aren't going to be fit for purpose. They are not going to insure in the same way that they have been um, going forward. You know, the government can send signals to business by making commitments, formal commitments. I think that's true. The business community is focusing on the nuts and bolts of the risk that they see, the financial, it's, yes. that's money for them. And so, again, it's another. this is sort of an area in which the government can maybe accelerate a transition or improve an outcome but fundamentally, the market forces are driving a huge transformation. Mm -hmm. It's both moving investment away from fossil fuels and away from infrastructure and assets that are exposed to climate hazards. It's both the transition risk mm -hmm. from fossil fuels and the impacts from, of climate change. And so that means billions, literally billions of dollars freed up for investments away from those two areas. Does the government also need to set up a vehicle to channel that investment um, into the right kinds of infrastructures um, for Australia to mitigate and climate change and also to deal with the increased natural, natural disasters? What the government can do, and this is under the, in the category of accelerating yes. that, is there will be some investments that the private sector might be close to making, but mm. it doesn't pencil out because maybe the additional benefit is a public interest rather yes. than a private good, yes. a private interest. And in those situations, if the government brings funding to the table, it can be matched with the private sector. And so an initiative can happen that both serves the private sector interest and the public sector interest and is actually a savings in terms of the public good. So Robert, we've talked a lot about, you know, critical infrastructure and, you know, the improvements that need to be made um, to enhance Australia's resilience in this new era. What about social infrastructure, cultural infrastructure? What kinds of changes might we need to make there? Yeah, well, with a transformation in risk now as a result of climate change, we also have to think transformationally mm. about, uh, about how we respond to that. An example would be we take our summer holidays at the south coast, we in uh, Canberra, New South Wales, uh, others go to the South Coast for the holidays at the peak of the bushfire yes. season and risk period. So, you know, a fundamental change would be, do we take holidays at a, at a different yeah, period a different of time? time? Or are we just rebuilding in the same towns? Or are we now, if a town is in a catastrophic risk area, do we rebuild in a different place? There have been examples in the past where after floods, the town, basically the town has mm. agreed to be relocated. So really we have to think very deeply about not just applying the Band-Aid, which is what we currently do after disasters, yes. but actually the transformation we need to make in the government. The federal government has a major role to play in achieving that. And it's part of a, you know, a broader communications campaign about changing cultures about state interests versus national interests and kind of building a sense that we actually are all going to be in this together. We really need to depend on each other. We need to really work together in ways that we're not used to doing. Absolutely. We're actually in a slow-moving national crisis right now. And mm. it's not just COVID, it's yes. climate as well. And it, just as with COVID, the states, the territories and the federal government came together. We need to begin developing that approach in the years ahead. 
we will do it because the disasters will keep happening and that way of working will become embedded in our bureaucracies. But it would be nice to get started on that now. There's heaps of evidence that we need to do it and, uh, and we are starting. Thank you very much for coming in today, Robert. My pleasure. Thanks, Anastasia. On the 8th of November, the people of Myanmar headed to the polls for the second time since five decades of military rule. The National League for Democracy, the party of Myanmar's de facto leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, was able to form government, but polls were cancelled in many ethnic minority areas across the country, including in Rakhine State and areas of Chin. Dr. Huang Le Tu speaks to Mo Thuzar, coordinator of the Myanmar Studies Program at the Isaias Yusof Ishak Institute, to unpack the election results and what they mean for Myanmar and our region going forward. There was another important election in November this year, that is in Myanmar. On the 8th of November, over 30 million voters went to the poll in Myanmar in only second openly contested general election. Um, We know the results by now. We know that uh, the leading party, National uh, Democracy Leagues, under Aung San Suu Kyi won by landslide and have secured another term. We want to uh, unpack more issues behind the elections and what's uh, ahead of Myanmar. Today, to to unpack uh, the elections with me is Ms. Mothuzar, a co-coordinator of Myanmar Study Program at Isif Yushaf Ishak Institute in Singapore. Welcome to the program, Mo. Thank you, Hu. So uh, the 2020 election um, also constituted the first experience that NLD had faced uh, the incumbent party ruling coming back to the votes. And it was in a very unusual situation of the COVID pandemic, one of the few countries that successfully conducted general election during the pandemic time. Uh, we know that NLD won by landslide and, and Aung San Suu Kyi gained even more seats than in 2015. There was relatively, compared to that time, uh, little coverage and less international enthusiasm, uh, partially maybe because of the overshadowing uh, US election that occupied most of international attention. But Mo, can you unpack for us the results? Uh, what were the main drivers and also what were the main some of limitations during this election. Thank you, Hong. It's a pleasure to be able to talk about Myanmar's recent vote with you and uh, through you with wider audiences who are interested in Myanmar. As you mentioned, yes, the NLD secured a second landslide in Myanmar's second openly contested multi-party elections, and it gained even more seats than it did in the 2015 landslide win. So I look at it, this success, as attributable to three broad factors. One is what we could call the Aung San Suu Kyi factor, because the consolidation of support for the National League for Democracy led by Aung San Suu Kyi has been very high. And uh, it became even more so after people viewed her as taking on the defense of national interest in the face of international scrutiny on Myanmar over the Rohingya issue, and also during the COVID-19 pandemic. So the second factor attributable to uh, the large voter turnout and um, uh, success of the uh, 2020 elections is also the uh, government's commitment to the COVID-19 response. Despite uh, concerns that COVID-19 might present a barrier to voting, people nevertheless turned out in confidence of the safe voting measures that the government provided. And uh, also more voters could... uh, 
cast their votes due to the advanced voting uh, facilitated for senior citizens above the age of 50, uh, of 60 to either vote from home or go to the local polling stations in advance uh, of election day. Connected to that large turnout, despite COVID-19 and despite uh, concerns over a possible spread uh, due to crowding at uh, polling stations, the third broad factor is the disinclination for any return of a larger military role in politics, larger military role as in larger than the current situation right now. So some statements made by the military days before the polls galvanized people to turn out and vote for the NLD as the only choice to continue with the, with the democratic transition. Leading to the voting day, there have been uh, quite a number of concerns just how open and uh, transparent the election could be um, given the situation that some of the ethnic groups, including um, the Rohingya, had been disallowed for casting the votes. Would you like to comment on that? Yes, the Union Election Commission issued uh, the announcement uh, cancelling votes in several parts of the country, uh, the ethnic areas, citing security reasons. As you know, Hung, there are ongoing conflicts between ethnic armed groups and Myanmar's military, the Tepnador, in several ethnic areas. And this presented a concern for security of uh, conducting the elections in these areas. This is not new. In 2015, there also had been cancellation of votings in some ethnic areas due to uh, security reasons. But what caused the surprise this time, I think, is uh, the rather late uh, announcement. It was uh, just about two weeks or so away from election day. And also the larger number of areas that were included in the vote cancellation. It affected 15 constituencies for the lower house and seven seats for the upper house. And But luckily, the elections were conducted peacefully and concluded in a peaceful manner. We know now um, the official results uh, and we know that uh, by what margin the NLD won. But there are still pressing issues to be addressed in the second term. Uh, there are some continuous issues, uh, such as we mentioned the Rohingya, but also priority becomes how to address the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, what do you think are the key agenda for uh, the next term of Aung San Suu Kyi and what should be her immediate priority to deal with? The main priority, the immediate priority would be addressing the economic as well as the social impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the government, because it has received a second mandate, it's already putting into place the Myanmar Economic Response and Recovery Plan as a successor to an earlier kind of midterm uh, plan called the COVID-19 Economic Relief Plan. So they recognize that tackling that economic and social fallout from COVID-19 is a priority, particularly as this has wide-ranging effects that uh, relate to bread and butter issues for, for people's lives and livelihoods. So they're very much aware of that, and that would be a priority. Usually for um, returned mandates, of course, that means that there will be continuity in key policies, which gives a good signal for the business community who, who look for continuity and stability in terms of um, what to expect in, 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 the, in the economic reforms and the business and investment plans and projects. So I see continuity, 
but continuity with that added dimension of addressing addressing the COVID-19 fallout and, of course, the necessary economic reform measures that need to be tackled within this context of the COVID-19 response. The other uh, main priority would be to continue with what the National League for Democracy, what the NLD government has consistently prioritized as national reconciliation. And that would have civil military relations dimensions, as well as picking up the peace negotiations with ethnic armed groups. So I've been looking at the news and there are some early indications that there might be supplementary or additional elections held in uh, some of these ethnic areas where voting was cancelled for the 2020 vote. Um, and so that's a good early indicator that uh, the, the government and the military are looking to uh, have wider participation by the ethnic political parties in the political process through elections, but also through another overture that uh, the military and the government have extended to the ethnic armed groups, even including those that had not been invited to the table before to join the nationwide ceasefire negotiations under the Union Peace Conference. I think a lot of uh, external observers will be very interested in that. Um, another thing would be the foreign policy of Myanmar going ahead. As we know, the Western societies have gone through different phases of over-enthusiasm about Myanmar's democratization to more recently a sense of um, maybe even disillusionment given that Do Aung San Suu Kyi was even, um, had her Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize revoked um, due to the um, uh, ethnic uh, issues. And um, how do you think that could further affect um, Myanmar's foreign policy and relations with Western societies. But also, um, do you think uh, there are other um, con uh, continuity that we really usually don't pay much attention to, uh, and there is much more than just the Rohingya issue when it comes to Myanmar? Uh, definitely, yes, there is more than the Rohingya issue, of course. So the continuity in foreign policy, I think Myanmar's foreign policy has been consistent through the years. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a foreign policy that's based on the five principles of peaceful coexistence, emphasizes non-alignment and neutrality, but it also indicates an active and independent stance in engaging the international community. And uh, when the National League for Democracy won the landslide victory in 2015, one of the first pronouncements that Dawn San Suu Kyi made at the time was that she was going to continue with the foreign policy that had served the country well over the years. So there will be continuity in this kind of foreign policy that is outward looking and seeks to engage uh, with uh, multiple partners. But I think the two main uh, dimensions uh, or refractions for this foreign policy going forward would be COVID-19 and also uh, engaging the international community over the Rohingya crisis. So there will be nuances, nuances that will be geared at economic diplomacy and uh, diversification of uh, Myanmar's uh, international partners. And I think with the new U.S. administration, I think there would also be hopes to engage the Biden administration within the ASEAN context and also within the bilateral relations context. Uh, you may recall uh, Mr. Joe Biden was President Obama's vice president during Mr. Obama's term as the president of the United States. So Mr. Biden will be familiar with Mr. Obama's policy of engagement with Asia and in facilitating and supporting Myanmar's democratic transition. 
So I think uh, for foreign policy continuity going forward, this emphasis on engaging with international partners, on identifying what are the aspects of Myanmar's continued democratic transition will be important. So two refracting factors, COVID-19 and uh, engaging with the international community over the Rohingya crisis and how to peacefully resolve that. And for more from Mo uh, explaining the foreign policy going ahead, please look at strategist special series, the Indo-Pacific election polls, where Mo has a, a contributing article about Myanmar uh, post-election. Thank you for uh, joining us today and unpacking the elections and things to look forward to. Thank My you, pleasure, Mo. Hon. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back with another episode next week.